Welcome to Coach House Talks. Okay, well, this morning we're going to continue looking at um, Paul's journeys on his second missionary journey. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17. Uh, And speaking of all things missionary, um, you know, we can be missionaries without actually being missionaries, if you know what I mean. And uh, and on Friday, Brenda and I went to um, to Regal Cleaners in Lavenger. Not to be cleaned, but but Brenda... Brand had actually left the coat there a week before because it needed a new zip. When we went in there, there was no one around that I could see. And we stood there for a few minutes. And um, Brenda said, oh, he's kneeling on his prayer mat at the back. Yes. <laughs> I didn't see anybody. So we stood there. And in the end, because um, <laughs> Levin is a very Islamic area near where we live. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so we left the shop. But as we left the shop, he came running after us. <laughs> So we went back in, and I was, and I was thinking, shall I give him a verse of scripture? I was thinking of Romans five eight, you know, that God commends His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because I was thinking about Him being at the back of His shop, praying to, a God, uh, praying to an entity that is that is not God. You know, Islam is, Islam does not bring salvation, it's only in Jesus. But I didn't actually say anything, perhaps I should have done, I didn't know what to do. And his little girl was stood there behind the counter looking at me. So um, as we go there again, I I shall actually say something. But, um, you know, we get missionary opportunities, sometimes we take them, sometimes we don't. Another time, a few years back, I was stood under the lich gate of St. Peter's in Levenger when it was pouring with rain. And uh, it was a Friday, and, and there's a mosque next door to St. Peter's Church, and all the Muslims are pouring out after their service. And one stood beside me, um, sheltering from the rain, so I did actually tell him about Jesus. So it's um, one time I didn't, one time I didn't. But anyway, um, we should all look for opportunities to, to talk to people about Jesus if you felt led to do that. So we come now to to Paul's journey to Athens. Though first of all, he he actually went through Thessalonica. Let's turn to Acts chapter 17 in in your Bibles. And this time we're looking at the unknown made known. So we're continuing to look at Paul's second missionary journey in this passage. In 17.1 it says, Now when they had travelled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So Paul's activities here is now is all in Greece. He's preaching the gospel in Greece, and they've arrived at Thessalonica. Now this is, the, this is actually the church that Paul founded that that he wrote the two letters to, because in the further on in your New Testament, you have First and Second Thessalonians, and it is to that church that is mentioned here in, in Acts 17 that Paul wrote. Now, it's believed that Paul was actually in Thessalonica around about AD 53, and it was a year later when he, he wrote those two letters to encourage that church and to help them with their problems. So so Paul actually established that church and and Silas was working with him. And um, it was a very troubled place, uh, as they were to find out. And 
Also, you notice that it says that Paul went to the synagogue. Wherever Paul went, it seems, he always sought out the, the synagogues. Uh, Paul himself was Jewish, but he had been given the task of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. But yet, you can see when you read the letter of Romans that Paul still had a heart for his own Jewish brethren. So whenever he arrived in a new place, he went to the synagogue. And on this occasion, he actually spends three weeks it says here, and according to Paul's custom in verse 2, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he was talking to his Jewish brethren. He, he, was, he was burdened deeply to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus to his Jewish brethren because he knew that they were waiting for the Messiah. They were expecting Messiah to come. But of course he had come. He had come about just a little time before and, and the Jewish people in Judea had rejected their Messiah. But yet Paul still had this heart to tell them about Jesus because he, he, he loved his people. And this was before he started preaching to the Gentiles there. But also in the synagogues there would have been Gentile believers in God who had become Jewish. They'd have adopted Judaism as, as their faith. And they were God-fearing Gentiles. So you spoke to them as well, telling them about Jesus. So his message was the suffering death and resurrection of Jesus. Now it says here that um, he Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now the, the scriptures, when, it's, when it talks about the scriptures here, it means the Old Testament the Jewish people called the Old Testament the Tanakh. That's from Genesis to, to Malachi. And the first five books are the Torah, the teaching, the law. But So that's the only scriptures they had because the New Testament hadn't been written then. And the, and the particular version of the scriptures that Paul used was, uh, was known as Septuagint. It was actually the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, because originally the, all, all the Old Testament scriptures were in Hebrew and some were in Aramaic. But over time, because of Greek influence in that part of the world and in that particular period of history, many Jews now spoke Greek, and there were even Jews, I believe, who couldn't actually read the scriptures anymore in their own language of he, uh, in Hebrew. So Paul and the other New Testament people, whenever they referred to the scriptures, they always referred to the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, which had been prepared a, a couple of hundred years before by 70, or it's, it's called Septuagint, it's something to do with 70 Jewish rabbis who had translated the scriptures from Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek. And Greek then was like English is today, it's a lingua franca of, of that world. So Paul argued with them from the Old Testament, from the Tanakh, their scriptures, about Jesus. And his message is always Christ and him crucified. Paul had no other message than this. He always wanted to show them that salvation is offered to us through Jesus, and Jesus had to suffer and to die. The Jews had two views of Messiah. There's, um, there's Yeshua ben Yosef, that Jesus, the son of Joseph, who would come in humility. 
the Messiah would come the first time in humility. And there was a second aspect that they looked forward to as all the Jewish people, that is Yeshua ben David, that is Jesus, son of David. When he, came, when he would come to restore the kingdom to Israel. You may remember that back in Acts, as Jesus was preparing to leave his, his disciples, they said to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because at that time they were under Roman occupation. And it had been such a long time that, that, that they'd, since they'd governed themselves. And Jesus didn't say that would never happen, that the kingdom would never be restored. He just said, it is not for you to know the time when this will happen. So that there was these two aspects that the Jews had of, of Messiah, but, Je- but Paul always preached about Jesus being the crucified one, the one who shed his blood on the cross. He, Jesus was descended from the house and lineage of David, and Joseph was his adopted father, but he was Messiah, he was Messiah then, when he, when he was born, when he ministered, he was Messiah, the anointed one. But he's not coming fully into his kingdom power there until he returns again to rule on earth at some point in the, in the future. But they were longing for that. Anyway, the, Jew, the Jews knew this was going to happen. It's just that they had missed Jesus. They, he hadn't done what they thought he was going to do at that time. He had not risen up and set them free from Rome. So... Paul spoke of Christ and him crucified. The church is birthed out of this good news and it must always be our message. The church has been here now for 2,000 years and our message was and always must be about Jesus and him crucified. There's no other message that we can bring to the world because there's, no there's no other thing that can make a change in people's lives other than this message that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, and no matter how messy your life is, he can clean it up by his power, by his spirit, and he shed his blood on the cross to to cleanse you from sin. So that what happens is that when you come to Jesus as a sinner, he takes your sin away, he cleanses you with his blood and he gives, gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he does that to everyone who comes to him, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. He gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit and he restores you to fellowship with God. And that is the message that the church must always preach. There is no other message. There's no modern quick fix about anything. There's no philosophy. Though he, Paul does come across philosophers a bit later, as we'll see. There's only one message that we must stick to as a church and believe as as Christians. Jesus and him crucified. His blood takes away our sin. And it's his blood that is the answer to all the world's problems. If only people would come to him, it would be such a remarkable thing. He, He would bring them back into fellowship with God. And this is the message that Paul, that Paul spoke and what we must always speak. Paul wanted to understand that, that in, in verses 17, sorry, chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. That word Christ there is from the Greek word Christos. It means anointed one. In, in the Jewish people would have known him as Messiah, Messiah, 
God's anointed king. So Paul was telling them then that he wanted them to understand that that Jesus is the Messiah, the one they awaited for. And he was, in fact, successful in some some way, he says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So in the synagogue that Paul preached in, there were those whose hearts were opened and they recognised that Jesus was their Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for. And even those those Greek converts to Judaism also came to give their hearts to Jesus, or at least some of them. So Paul did experience some success there. However, there was trouble coming. In verses 5 and 6 it says, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. Wherever we preach the gospel, I think it's fair to say that we can expect opposition and trouble because it's a spiritual warfare. The Bible tells us that that all people are dead in trespasses and sins, whether you're Jews or Gentiles, we're all dead in trespasses and sins. And Satan has a legal claim to us because going right back to Eden and, and also the sin in our own lives, But yet Jesus came to break his power, to destroy the works of the devil and to set us free. So Satan's a bit upset about this. A bit is an understatement, I imagine. So he stirs up trouble. We get persecution in all forms. Here on this occasion, as so often happens in places even today, Satan stirred up civil unrest. Civil unrest is created by the Jews who didn't want to know Jesus. They wanted to stop Paul preaching at all costs. So they, they accused Paul and Silas of opposition to Caesar. It's in verse 7 of our passage. It says, And Jason had welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released him. Now, Jesus is a king. When, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate asked him this, are you a king? And Jesus replied that he was a king, but that his kingdom was not of this world. He was telling Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea at the time, that his being there was not a threat to the established political order of the Roman Empire of that day. Because if he, if he had have said that, when, then they would have been justified in crucifying him. But Jesus was not a threat to, to, the, to the established political um, thing of the day. And we are not either. Jesus came to bless people. He came to heal people and to, and to give his life an offering for sin. But yet these people were stirring up the crowds and and the civil authorities trying to say that Jesus was actually in opposition to Caesar, but he wasn't. Jesus was not a rebel against Rome. 
over all the kingdoms of this earth, there is one person, a fallen, a fallen cherub, Satan, and all the kingdoms of this world have become his. We handed the title deeds over to, of earth over to him when we fell. And, and the Bible says that the whole world lieth in the evil one, to quote, to quote the, um, the authorised version. All these kingdoms are under his power. But Jesus had not come at that time to do anything about that, because Jesus had come at that time to start releasing individuals from Satan's kingdom. Eventually a time will come when Satan will be evicted from his usurped authority over the powers over the world. But Jesus started in a little way, which grew bigger and bigger, of, of releasing individuals who would believe in him from the kingdom and the rulership of, of, of satanic powers. So Jesus was not a threat to Caesar, he was not a threat to the Roman Empire, and he's not a threat even to the communist rulers of today. Com you know, communism, which was written, Karl Marx founded communism, and he said that religion is the opiate of the people. Because one of the basic tenets of communism is atheism. And they fear Christianity because it is the only thing that can make bad men good. In communist societies, they try to make everyone equal and woe betide anyone who doesn't toe the party line. It, it came to be the case in the Soviet Union, Soviet Russia, that anyone who, who opposed communist ideology actually ended up in an insane asylum because they were actually considered mentally ill if they, if they would not accept communist doctrine. And they did regard Christianity as a threat to their rulership. The trouble is, you see, human governors, kings and queens and presidents and all the others, they always have this temptation to act absolutely, to rule in power, to... They say that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But when you, when you love Jesus, he is able to take this desire out of your heart. And there are wicked people who do not want this. They accuse Paul of Silas with, of, a, of a opposition to Caesar. <clears throat> and they said that he was a threat to the status quo, but, but he wasn't. The gospel is only a threat to evil men who rule nations only to aggrandize themselves. We, we don't come in to oppose politicians and governments because what happens is as, as Jesus heals people of, their, of sin, as he takes the selfishness and the, and the wickedness away from them, it begins to affect. It's like a sweet odor going through society. You find that crime begins to fall off. You know, um, the gospel affects society socially. I, I read somewhere once that there needs to be at least 5% of the population to be Christian for this, for this to start to happen. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I do know that where the entrance of God's word is, it, it brings light. And his, his word is good. In China at the moment, the church is still being persecuted because the Chinese communist government there doesn't want to give up power. They feel threatened by the gospel. But yet they could still rule. You know, they could love the Lord and still rule. Only, of course, they'd stop enforcing the atheistic aspects of communism. 
you know, when you know Jesus, he takes away all that sort of thing. I should know, I, I once, well, I was raised in atheism and I didn't want to know God, but when I found out about Jesus, he changed all that. You know, and praise him, he, he, he does this sort of thing. He makes things better. But we have to remember that at this time, Satan is still free to rule and to reign over the governments of the earth. There will be opposition, and Paul here experienced opposition. So the upshot in, in 1710 is that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So the upshot is that Paul and Silas and Timothy are sent away for their own safety by the Thessalonian believers, and they go to Berea again. And again, Paul seeks out the synagogue there in Berea. In verses 10 to 12, then Paul immediately, they, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away to, at night to Berea, and then when, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with, a great num so, along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. So you see, Paul is there once again. He, he visits his Jewish brethren to tell them about Messiah Yeshua, about Jesus, who is the Saviour and, and Messiah. And these people, of course, they look at their Bibles, they look at their, their Tanakh, their Old Testaments, their, their Septuagint version of, of, the, of the Hebrew Scriptures. And, Paul, and they begin to see that, yes, Jesus is there in the Old Testament. It speaks to him. It speaks of him. It points to his coming. All those sacrifices, as I mentioned before at communion, they all pointed forward to the one great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, which is why we have John the Baptist's final cry, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Paul showed them all these things, in, in their Jewish scriptures, proving that Jesus is the Christ, the, the, the Saviour. So he's there in the synagogue and, he, and he's preaching Jesus, but he is upset by the idolatrous character. So let's go back a bit. He, he went to Berea first beforehand, and then he, he moves on to, to Athens, uh, and Silas and Timothy stay behind in, in Berea to minister there to the, the little fellowship that's grown there. But Paul goes to Athens in, <coughs> in those verses, 15 through 17. <coughs> so it says, it says that in verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So Paul was there on his own in Athens, and he wanted Silas and Timothy to come to him to help him in, in the ministry there. But what he did notice is that, um, that Athens which was a chief city in Greece, was full of idols, full of religions. And it's really upset him, it's really pricked him in his heart. You know, he, being Jewish as well, he knew that there is but one God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
But these these Gentile people, they, they were worshipping... No, that they had loads and loads of gods. I used to read Greek mythology, Greek mythology as a boy at school in, in the, the library instead of going up playtimes. And the number of gods that they have is, is absolutely amazing. <clears throat> you know, some, in England at one time, we used to say, by Jove, that means by Jupiter or Zeus. <laughs> it, 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 even, it even came here. <laughs> but uh, Paul was really pricked in his heart by all these, these, um, these idols. And uh, so while Paul is awaiting Silas and Timothy, he goes again to the local synagogue to preach Jesus, but he is upset by the idolatrous character of Athens. Now, while Paul is is looking at all these idols and also preaching, because he starts preaching not only in a synagogue, but also in the marketplace. So in verse 17, it says, So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those that happened to be present. And it says that um, Paul is approached by the representatives of Epicurus and Zeno, the Stoic. It actually says here, and also some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaiming a strange deity or strange deities. Now... Athens was a place of intellectualism. It was the it was the centre of Greek intellectualism, and the Greeks were a very intellectual people. They you know they had the first scientists, you know the first mathematicians. They um, they discovered things that we use now, like Pythagoras' theorem and all that sort of stuff, you know. And um, so they were a very intellectual people, but they didn't know God. You know, you can be as intellectual as you like, you can be as scientific as you like. And, and the amazing thing is that the... And it's not amazing, really, it's only natural. Uh, it, it says that, you know, God wants us to study his creation. Great are the works of the Lord, it says in one of the Psalms, studied by all who had pleasure in them. There was a guy called Lord Rutherford who was one of the early researchers in nuclear energy. And he actually had that verse, I think it's from Psalm 111, over the top of his laboratory. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all those who have pleasure in them. You don't have to assassinate your brains to be a Christian. I read a book of that, of that name as a, as a young Christian. It's all about Romans. You know, we don't have to take our brains out and stamp on them. There's nothing about Christianity that is unreasonable. There's nothing about belief in God that is unreasonable. And the creation, Paul says, speaks, speaks of him. It's just that being intellectual alone and being scientific alone, this cannot bring you into a saving relationship with God. The creation can point, and I believe does point, to the existence of a creator. But it's only through Jesus and not through science that you can come to have a relationship with God. And you can still continue as a scientist or as an intellectual or as a student. I'll say again, you don't have to assassinate your brains to be a, to be a Christian. Now then, these philosophers came to, um, to have a word with Paul. And I just thought I'd tell you what, briefly what, what they believed. <clears throat> Bear with me a minute. Mm-hmm. Hope this works. 
Right, the Epicureans, okay, it was, it was approached by Representative Epicurus of the Epicure. Epicureanism is a system of philosophy based upon the teachings of the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, founded around 307 BC. Epicurus was an atomic materialist. See, Greeks even had the, the atomic theory before we had it as well. John Dalton eventually developed the theory, but the, the ancient Greeks knew about atoms before we did, or believed that they existed. So he was an atomic materialist following in the steps of Democritus. <clears throat> Let's see. Mm. Try again. My phone went blank. Um, following in the footsteps of Democritus, his materialism led to a general attack on superstition and divine intervention following Aristippus, about whom very little was known. Epicurus believed that the greatest good was to seek modest, sustainable pleasure in the form of a state of tranquility and freedom from fear, which they called atasia, and absence of bodily pain, aponia. Through knowledge of the workings of the world and the limits of our desires, the combination of the two states constitutes happiness in its highest form. Then it goes on to talk about hedonism. There's a form of hedonism and so on, but not gross hedonism. Well, that was uh, Epicureanism. Now, the other one that, that Paul was approached by <clears throat> was Stoicism. Now, Stoicism is a school of Hellenistic or Greek philosophy which was founded by Zeno of Citium in Athens in the early 3rd century BC. Stoicism is a philosophy of personal ethics informed by its system of logic and its views on the natural world. According to its teachings, as social beings, the path to eudaimonia, that is happiness, for humans is found in accepting the moment as it presents itself by not allowing oneself to be controlled by the desire for pleasure or fear or of pain, by using one's mind to understand the world and to do one's part in nature's plan, and by working together and treating others fairly and justly. I wonder if Mr. Zot, Mr. Spock was a Stoic. <clears throat> yeah, he's, he's always into logic, wasn't he, <laughs> In, on Star Trek. <laughs> so um, Paul was approached by these people and they actually take him to, to the Areopagus, which was a, a kind of university structure, you might, you might say, on, on a place called Mars Hill, a high place up in Athens there. In 1718, it says... Mm, um, yeah, I've already read that to you. So anyway, they, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May me know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what all these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So, philosophy... Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, I've not actually looked this up, not to let yourselves be spoiled by philosophy. The world is full of philosophies, and a lot of it comes from ancient, ancient Greeks. Even some of the early church fathers started getting into, into Greek philosophy. Plato is very famous, and so is Aristotle. And one or two of the, the, the early church fathers started getting into Platonism which, uh, I mean, it's okay to read the stuff. Like I said before, you don't have to assassinate your brains. I, I, I have a Plato's works on my Kindle, so, and I, I look at it from time to time. And it is fascinating stuff. 
But what we have to remember is that human philosophy cannot lead us to peace in God, with God. You know, you can believe all sorts of stuff. We had a, when, in, in the last days, when I was helping out with um, Sunshine Club, uh, one of the little boys there was asked, who is the greatest, the most powerful being in the universe? And his reply was, aliens. <laughs> you know, pe people these days believe in UFOs, uh, extraterrestrial civilizations. Um, they, they prefer to believe in that sort of thing rather than God. But um, maybe it's an open question whether or not uh, other beings exist, in intelligent beings exist on other planets. I'm not sure myself. But the thing is that all that stuff, whether they exist or not, any kind of human philosophy cannot bring us to a relationship with God. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, do not let yourselves be spoilt by philosophy. Don't get carried away by the stuff that the world brings to you. If you have an intellectual bent, then by all means read it, but bear in mind that the truth about God is in the Bible. There's no other book on earth that contains God's truth, only the Bible. So just bear that in mind from that point of view. So they took Paul to the Areopagus on Mars Hill. Now, I call these people the Mars Hill mob. I think gangsters, but no, they weren't really like the, the Mars Hill mob. They, they, want, they wanted to hear more about Jesus. And they says they spent all their time listening to new ideas. You know, these, these guys were academics, and it's seen that, that um, they would have been wealthy. They didn't have to work for a living. They would have had slaves at home doing everything for them. Uh, the point about the Greeks who invented democracy is that democracy was not then for everyone. It was only for the rich and powerful. All the other plebs had to just work and be slaves, and it was not for them. But uh, democracy moved on. Anyway, um, <clears throat> all they did was listen to new things. So Paul speaks to them. <clears throat> Paul gave them just, well... He, he brings this, this message about Jesus. He tells them about Jesus. And from verse 20, it says, For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Okay, then, Paul, Paul stands up on the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription like to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, <clears throat> does not dwell in temples made with hands. Stop drink. Does not uh, live in temples made, made with hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist." even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Now then, it's interesting to note there that 
that Paul was familiar with, with Greek philosophy because he, he refers to their poets. I didn't actually look this up, but um, Paul, Paul grew up in a world where Greek philosophy and intellectualism were very much to the fore, as I've said before. So Paul himself was an intellectual and academic. He was a university guy. He would have been if he had lived in our time. They, they had universities back then. But of course, he was a, he had been a Pharisee. But he, Paul was one of these people who had not assassinated his brains. Paul, Paul was knew a lot of things about Greek culture. He was familiar with the philosophers. He was familiar with the poets, and he used this to actually talk to them. You know, you can actually use the stuff that the world believes in to talk to them. You know, you can you can take scientific subjects and talk to them. This is you know art because on the basis that God exists, the things that we can see through scientific research. Did you know, for example, it's fascinating, you don't hear a lot about this, but down at a molecular level in the cells of your body, you actually have little electric motors whirring away. It's amazing, it really is. Little electric motors in the cells of your body. Um, all this points to a designer, a creator, God. And all this has come to, to light through, through science and through the use of electron microscopes and so on. You know, we, we know things now that they didn't then. But the more you look into nature, the more you look into the world, you know, the more you can see that it didn't just happen by chance. And by the way, the theory of evolution also started with the Greeks. Charles Darwin was not the original uh, teacher on evolution. The Greek, there were Greeks who believed in it as well. But they probably didn't view it in the same way that Darwin did. Darwin, Darwin had rejected belief in God. In fact, you might as well know that Darwin actually fell out with God. He did believe in God, but because his young daughter died of a sickness, he really got fed up and cheesed off, and he, he said, right, that's it, finished. And he, and he wrote um, Origin of Species, and he tried to promote this view that, uh, you know, that there's just survival of the fittest. And that one thing evolves from the other, which we know is not true. One thing does not evolve from the other. God created all the species exactly as they are. One thing does not evolve from the other. But you can see all this in science anyway. It's a big argument. But Paul knew all this stuff, and he uses it to, to, to speak to them. So <clears throat> these people were just mere, had a mere academic interest in new ideas and philosophies. But Paul brings them the gospel. And the thing in bringing the gospel is that it requires a response. The gospel of the Lord Jesus is not just something you discuss academically, because it's something that requires a response. Once you know about Jesus, once you know that he is the only way back to God, it, you are then responsible for what you know, because... God will hold you responsible for it. On the day when you stand before him, if, if you reject that message, you cannot plead ignorance because, because you've been made aware of the gospel. But you can choose to follow Jesus or you can choose not to. But whatever you do, the gospel does require a response. It's not like other things. It's not academic. You know, it's, it's a very practical faith. You need to respond to Jesus. If you know about him, you need to make a response. You either follow him or you go away from him. So <clears throat> Paul left them with this choice to make. Now, everything was going fine until we get to, towards the end of the chapter, 22 to 30. It says... 
Paul says, being then children of God, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man, therefore being overlooked, God overlooked the times of ignorance. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And this is the essence of the gospel, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he has fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, if any of them were falling asleep at that point, they suddenly would have pricked up when they heard this phrase, resurrection, being raised from the dead. Because in, in Greek religious belief, there was no resurrection. They believed that all the dead, they, they did believe in an afterlife, but they, they believed that all the dead people, without exception, went down to Hades, which was ruled by, the, 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 he was one of Zeus's brothers, actually, there was Zeus, and one of his brothers was called Hades, and the other one was um, the god of the sea, Tri Triton, or anyway, Hermes, no, not Hermes, Tri Zeus had two brothers. Zeus was the king of the gods in, in Greek mythology, but one of his brothers was called Hades, after whom Hades is named. It's the Greek word for hell. In Hebrew, it's Sheol. Mm. And they believed that everyone's soul went down into Hades forevermore. Once you were dead, that's it. You just existed in this twilight world of, of death. And that was it forever. There's no hope of a resurrection. It never even entered their minds, intellectually, intellectual as they were, that there might be a resurrection. So when they heard this, they were really woken up. And, and they began to mock him as well. Some of them began to mock him. I think most of them began to, began to, mock, to mock them because they did not believe that there was a re resurrection. Paul also expounds and makes known the unknown. He tells them of the one true God and his graciousness to themselves. God, Paul doesn't actually criticize their belief in the pagan gods of, of, of Greece. He, um, he just points them to the truth, and that's one of the things that we have to do. If you go to speak to a Muslim, don't become critical of, of the Muslim faith. Same with Hindus and others. Don't take a negative stance, just present Jesus to them. And that's what Paul did here. He, he didn't start criticizing Zeus or Apollo or Hades or any of the other gods that they believed in. He just presented them simply with Jesus so that they could make up their minds about this. So Paul expounded and made known to them the unknown God. He'd seen that altar to the unknown God. They were so worried that they might offend the God they thought, if there's an unknown God who we haven't worshipped, well, this altar is for him. So Paul takes this opportunity to say, this unknown God, and he was unknown. I guess the Greeks would have heard of the God of Israel, but it's just they didn't include him in their pantheon of gods. Yahweh, <clears throat> Adonai, they, they, they did not include him in their pantheon of gods. He was the God of Israel. He was uniquely the God of Israel, though it's also true he is the God of all the earth, the Lord of heaven and earth, but they didn't know him. So Paul preached this God to them, and he preached about God to them in the connection with, with the gospel of coming to him through Jesus. So Paul expounds and makes known the unknown. He tells them of the one true God and his graciousness to themselves, because God had overlooked their idolatry. But now he was saying, now he was saying, God has come to you with this good news 
and you have to make a decision. He requires you to repent. To become a Christian, you repent. That means you turn away from your sin and you give your heart to Jesus through faith and you follow him and you no longer do those things that you did previously. Of course, you will always struggle with sin in your life. You know, God is able to help with the Holy Spirit and we, through the ministry, are able to help people with their struggles. But the, the great thing is that we have the opportunity to repent, to no longer live under darkness, spiritual darkness, but to come into God's glorious light through, through Jesus. So here, Paul tells them of Jesus' resurrection, which we've just seen. It's, and it's, it's upon this that is based all the gospel and God's dealings with us. No resurrection, no hope. The keystone of, of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we might as well go home. Jesus rising from the dead is the, is the tremendous proof that God has accepted his sacrifice for sin. We face death. We're not going to live forever. And, of course, later on this week, Anne's funeral is going to take place, which is a reminder that we are mortal. But yet in Jesus, we have this hope of eternal life. Because he lives, we shall live also. Because Jesus rose from the dead and lives, we will live also if you give your heart to him. He will raise those from the dead. Jesus said it is not the Father's will that he, that he should lose any of those who trust in him, but on the last day he will raise them up. And this is the message that, that Paul fetched to these Greek intellectuals. He spoke to them of God's graciousness and of the need to repent. So here Paul tells them of Jesus' resurrection. And we have to hold at the heart of our faith that Jesus did rise physically from the dead. You can't be like those liberal theologians who say maybe Jesus is still dead. He's not dead. Because if he's dead, then God did not accept his sacrifice. I'll tell you another thing. If Jesus had stayed dead, no one would know about him now. In the time that Jesus lived, there were loads and loads of Messiah figures. Can anyone name one of them? We can't, can we? unless you start getting intellectual and reading some of the history. But the vast majority of the world's people do not know of, about anyone as a Messiah figure other than Jesus. And why do we know about him? Because he rose from the dead. And why would the apostles, his disciples, put their lives at risk to say that Jesus had risen from the dead when they knew he hadn't? They put their lives at risk because they'd met him afterwards. Jesus had come to them physically, eaten food, they'd touched him, they'd seen him. They saw him ascend back into heaven. They knew he was alive. The hope of the resurrection starts with Jesus. And that is the cornerstone of our faith. So many of these philosophers balked at the resurrection of Jesus. This was an alien concept to them. As I said, they did not believe. It was not part of their religious belief that a resurrection would ever occur. So in verses 33-34, Paul gives them just one opportunity with this message. Don't waste your opportunity. In verses 33-34 it says, So Paul went out of their midst. Bear that in mind. It says Paul actually left. And there's no record that he ever went back to the Areopagus, back to Mars Hill. So he went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul gave them, he was invited by these Greek intellectuals to address them about his new teaching. And he, he did just that. And he gave them the opportunity to believe in Jesus. 
Now, you may have many opportunities to believe in Jesus, but the Bible tells us this. If today you hear God's voice speaking to you, then don't put it off. Come to Jesus today. If there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus, then make this day that you come to him because you're not promised tomorrow. Jesus, in John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. People who do not know Jesus, when they die, they perish. They go into destruction. They don't cease to exist. They go down into this place called Hades that the Greeks believed in. They were right there. There really is a Hades. There really is a hell. It's a sort of prison house for the, the realm of the dead where people are kept until the great judgment comes. So people who die without faith in Jesus perish, and it is forever. All the, the only thing they've got to look forward to then is to then is the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire, which it speaks of in Revelation. But, but because God loves you, he's given you the opportunity to miss that, to believe in Jesus and not to perish, so that when you pass in this life, you don't perish in Hades. You find yourself before Jesus in a new body, a new re a resurrection body as he intended you to be, full of joy. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I long to see Jesus face to face. You know, I... It would be lovely to see Jesus. I mean, this is all about Jesus. Paul's message was only ever about Jesus, whether he went to Jews or whether he went to, G to Gentiles. It was only ever about Jesus. And of course, he had met Jesus. Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, as we have seen earlier in Acts. And Paul was buzzing for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And I just want to conclude this by saying that... Um, that as Paul gave those Arapagites, those Greek philosophers, that, that, that opportunity to believe in Jesus. So we all have that opportunity here and now. So please, let's take it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.